Hello and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. Any big change you choose to make in your life starts with a decision, a decision to take one tiny leap. Enter the Tiny Leaps Big Changes podcast. In this podcast, the host, Greg Clunis, shares simple strategies you can implement in your life to start moving the needle towards your biggest goals. A top 10 mental health podcast, Tiny Leaps Big Changes has over 600 episodes for you to choose from, packed with step-by-step guidance for real practical self-help. So go on and take this tiny leap and search Tiny Leaps Big Changes wherever you get your podcasts so you can start making progress in your own life and reach your heights. Ed Cook is the co-founder of one of the world's largest language learning platforms, Memrise. But he's also a global grandmaster of memory, which is even more relevant because today he's going to teach you how to remember anything. A helpful hint to get started, it's all about paying attention. So for the next 15 minutes, stay focused. Welcome to the show, Ed. Ed, you started um, off as a grandmaster of memory and I guess before we even get into the conversation today, it would be great if you just let us know what that really means, because it sounds very grand. Um, yes, it is a, it's a very grand term for something which is um, more ordinary than it sounds. But there's an international network of memory tournaments which takes place around the world where people competitively memorize things like long sequences of numbers and cards and so on. And there's a particular kind of qualification you can get, I believe, awarded by the Norwegian king, like uh, chess grandmasters, which um, effectively requires you to be able to memorize 10 decks of cards in an hour and a 1,000-digit number in an hour. And if you can do that, then you become a grandmaster of memory. Uh, How does memory work when you're a grandmaster? Whenever you're recalling anything, you're going from kind of one mental context to another one through association. And the vast majority of what allows a memory grandmaster to learn stuff much more effectively is by being very conscious about these associations and being very explicit and about how you arrange them in your mind. So whereas normally we kind of allow our memory to work without even thinking about how it works, when you train your memory, you become very strategic, very very specific about how you move your mind to make the kinds of associations that stick. Effectively, um, you know, the vast majority of what we forget, we forget because we don't pay attention in the first place, because it doesn't produce much of an impact in our minds. So, for instance, when you forget someone's name, it's normally because you haven't really paid much attention in the first place. Um, And we can see this effect because when you do pay attention to things, when things are bright and interesting and violent and evoke emotions, you remember them automatically. No one forgets the sight of a stampede of bison flocking past their home or, um, you know, a Ferrari crashing into their bicycle and flipping over and landing on a post box or anything like this. So anything vivid and interesting, you'll automatically remember. And a lot of the art of memory is deliberately making things more interesting by associating them Consciously, you know, simple example, just taken from kind of vocabulary acquisition. Well, what languages are you are you keen on, Dan? Uh, keen on Spanish and keen on Japanese, just completely useless. Let's take a very simple example. So, yeah, the Spanish word for table is la mesa. 
Typically, a word like that doesn't evoke very much in your mind. It's not super interesting. In order to remember it, you know, you might use a mnemonic, which is to say you might associate something you already know. It sounds like mesa with um, its meaning, which is table, and say like, oh, there's a big mess uh, on the table. That's the kind of maneuver we're talking about. I've noticed that your um, your herbal uh, brain supplements have a kind of long list of rather difficult to remember ingredients. Um, and as I kind of as I read through this list, I'm like, wow, you know, it would take some remembering to do this. So you know, you've got blueberry 4.1 extract standardized to 25% anthocyanidins. You've got DHA, pantothenic acid, niacin, riboflavin, thiamine. You know, these are, you know, as, you, as, as the listener listens to these words, they're going to be like, oh, goodness. And you can kind of see them almost going into your mind and immediately popping back out. And so what a memory person would do is take each one of these things and form an image for it. So let's begin with blueberry four to one extract. Well, that's kind of quite easy. So you can imagine some blueberries. But then the next one is anthocyanidins. And so for this, you might imagine a famous Anthony. Who's, well, give me a famous Anthony, Dan. Uh, Anthony Costa from Blue. Remember Blue? It's embarrassing that that came up before Anthony Hopkins, frankly. Oh, it's good though, yeah. So we, like, we can imagine Anthony Costa, and it's good that he came from Blue because we're going to link him to the blueberries. And we're going to have Anthony, you know, um, he's, he's had some cyanide, but he's going to have the blueberries now, and that's going to sort him out. So that's the anthocyanidins. That's how we remember that one. And then we got pantothenic acid. And so what does panto make you think of, uh, Dan? Uh, your shirt. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, but why does my shirt make you think of Panto? It's, it's rather, it's rather loud and amusing. And so, yeah, you might imagine me in a pantomime, and um, that might help you remember Panto Scenic. You know, you might be imagine the scenery behind me. So it's, it's kind of Panto Scenic. Mm. We've got that. We've also, we've already had Anto Cyanidins. Next thing might be Niacin. Um, and again, you just look for the first association you can think of. Okay, Naya Sin. Okay, well, I actually have I've got a friend called Naya. Um, and, you know, she's not a sinner, but if she did sin, it would be memorable. So I think of Naya Sin. And, and so we've got images for all these individual things. And the next thing we might do is link them into a story or arrange them around a space in order to be able to remember them. So is it always about the, like you just said, there's the first thing that comes into your mind. Is there a reason for that? Because, you know, when I'm listening to you, I would imagine it'd be worthwhile really trying to work on the most memorable and vivid image you can possibly get into your mind rather than the first. But is the first just your lowest hanging fruit anyway of how your memory works? Well, that's a very good question. And all memories are associations. And normally um, your first association is um, with a new thing is your, is your shortest path to connecting to that. So you do typically pick off the first association you can. And then it's the, it's the second maneuver that you make, that you try and make as vivid as possible. So for instance, with Anthony from Blue, you know, that's your first association. But then when we, we, we have to remember it's anthocyanidins. Okay, yeah. we're going to make that as vivid and emotional images as possible. And so maybe, you know, he's uh, expressing pain and choking and this kind of thing. And then when you see it in your mind, you'll be like, okay, Anthony, cyanidin. Okay, very good. This practical way that you're explaining how memory works actually makes a lot of sense, and uh, and and you know, and I can see I can see how you can use this in your real life as well. But when you talk to people about, I'm going to be interviewing a grandmaster of memory, everyone just brings up the same thing, which is yeah, like memory palace. Um, is the memory palace real? Is it a practical tool? Is it basically this 10x? Um, it is pretty much this um, suddenly extended. So the, uh, the whole art of memory is, is connecting things together in your mind. And one of the things we have a naturally brilliant memory for is spaces. 
you know, if you visit someone's home or something and have to, in two minutes and you have a bit of a look around, you can more or less kind of form an image and, and a recollection of, of where everything's kind of pretty much arranged in that home, all the rooms and the stairs and, and so on and so forth. This is like a natural capacity coming from the fact that I guess for the last, whatever, 300 million years of mammalian evolution, we've been very good at remembering spaces. And what we do, the reason this is important is that spaces can be used to structure information which is less memorable than spaces. And that's typically something like a sequence. And so while it's super easy to remember the, the journey from your home all the way to the park and half past all the buildings and stuff that you know, go there, remembering a list of ingredients or something is much more tricky. And so that's where the memory palace comes in. And, and so, so what, what, this, what this technique is, is that you're simulating or imagining yourself passing through a space and then you're plonking, basically, imagined objects at points along that path. And because you're very good at remembering things in space, you remember their sequence very easily. And even though it sounds, you know, when I'm explaining this, I'm thinking, goodness me, what an elaborate set of steps to remember just a mere sequence. But um, it's extremely easy to do, and it scales linearly. So, you know, it might take a minute to learn 10 items, but it'll only take you 10 minutes to learn 100 items, uh, and an hour and 20 minutes to learn... Uh, an hour and 40 minutes to learn a thousand items. And so, and so that allows you to, to basically scale your memory to incredible lengths. I've got a really nerdy question, but let's say that you were trying to, you know, recite a hundred, uh, like a hundred numbers or something. And if at number 84, your recollection has gone slightly skew with, is that kind of game over because you've broken the chain or are you able to try and remember number 84 and get back into the flow? Oh, that's a great question. And funny enough, I mean, a related technique to memory palaces this is just stories. And this is, of course, like for forever and a day, a historic part of human cultural memory is to tell stories or, uh, you know, through songs or poetry or what have you. There is more of a chance um, if you miss a link in a story that it will break your flow completely and then you'll be unable to continue after the breach. And you can link, think of this in, in terms of very simple terms. It's like there's a chain, there's a missing link. It's impossible to find what's next along. But the great thing about spaces is that you don't really have the same, the analogy of a missing chunk in space where you, um, you no longer um, can imagine what goes on the other side. Space is sort of um, has, has graceful failure or is robust or resilient. I don't know how, how, how to say it. So you might, you might miss a particular number, but you can carry on after the fact. Got it. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to remember and how did you do it? Probably memorising the first few books of Paradise Lost by John Milton was the hardest. And that was because... Um, you naturally remember words through their meaning, and very often the kind of sequences of words in epic poetry are in extremely intricate and unintuitive order, and there's an, there's an awful lot of them. I remember I did this in my early 20s, and one of the actual interesting things that emerged from that struggle, which, I, by the way, I achieved through basically memory palaces and a lot of repetition. And the reason that you need repetition on top of memory palaces is that Let's imagine you've got some line from Milton, you know, high on a throne of royal state, the devil exalted sat by merit raised to that bad eminence or something like that. You might have kind of images for some of the individual words there, things like throne, devil, bad eminence or whatever. Again, you'll just find images which sort of reflect your first association. But you can't actually read poetry at speed while accessing those images. It's more of a kind of safety net or a guidance in the end. And so it does actually require 
something which would be very intuitive to everyone who's ever been in a play or had to memorize any um, anything like that. It does actually require um, a lot of structured repetition to get it get it all the way in. But what I was going to say was the interesting thing which emerges from this kind of training, which I think is perhaps the most interesting thing about memory, is that memory is kind of the flip side of perception. And so if you remember patterned data of a particular kind in enormous amounts, you can almost reproduce it spontaneously. Um, a bit like you see in kind of neural networks where like they get really good at recognizing images and you know with some minor modifications they can get quite good at producing lifelike images which they've actually just you know inverted commas imagined. But like one of the consequences of learning you know several thousand lines of Milton is that you um, you gain the ability to kind of improvise Miltonically somewhat. Which is obviously the desperate thing that we need more of in society. 100%. Potentially. 100%. Potentially. Or maybe 90%. 90%. Um, okay, what's your secret fact about memory that you wish more people knew? That photographic memory is not just, not just doesn't exist, but is inconceivable. Amazing. That is actually incredible. Uh, can you elaborate? I think because I was one of them, I can kind of relate to this. Every child in the world has been intimidated by tales of like, oh, there's this guy I met, completely photographic memory, you know, whatever, you know, implying that the struggle the ordinary mind has in memory, remembering anything is um, basically that you've kind of drawn the short straw and you have kind of a useless brain. But actually, um, we know that photographic uh, memory doesn't exist and can't exist because photographic perception doesn't exist. It's actually been very obvious to magicians forever, but a particular kind of tranche of cognitive science and psychology from the 90s onwards, looking at things like inattentional blindness and change blindness and other paradigms, basically show that you see a minimal amount of what's in front of you. The impression you have that you have a high resolution visual field is substantially driven by the fact that if you need more information, you can move your eye. So you're like, you know, if I, if, if I want to gaze at your fine shirt right now, I can take in some of the subtle details of the, uh, of the flowers and so on on your shirt. But when I'm looking, um, you know, at your face and into your eyes and so on, that detail just isn't, it isn't even bridging my, my brain. And so really we, we, we perceive the gist of scenes and our perception isn't at all objective. It's not like a, it's not like an informational input, really. It's actually much more of a kind of creative conception of the meaning of the scene in front of us. And once you realize that's how perception works, it becomes much more natural to understand how memory works, which is to say that memory is full of imagination. It's full of emotion. It's full of thought. It's not this like dry, boring, databasey thing. It's where, you know, life itself is, is at its richest. Amazing. Okay. What are the three three key lessons that you'd want members of the audience to remember on memory? Number one, every memory is a connection. So if you want to learn something, link it in your mind to something else. Most forgetfulness is a lack of attention. And so if ever you feel, as most adults do, that their memory is failing them, assume that it's your attention that's failing you and develop better ways of paying attention to things. And three... Um, know that fundamentally imagination is your most powerful tool for amplifying both attention and memory because we attune best to what is meaningful. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. 
If you want to know more about how well you're feeding your brain, you can head to yourheights.com forward slash brain food to get your free score from one to 100 and start taking action from there. See you next week. Thank you.